to share my story with you. And to talk about identity, I had to think about my own personal story. So I'm going to tell you more about myself, which you haven't heard all these years of us knowing each other. My name, the whole name, is Catherine Marie Lasady Smith Dirksen. My first names are from my grandmothers. My mother's mother, Marie, is my only American English-speaking grandparent. Catherine is my Mennonite Grossma. My father's family is German Mennonite, a Protestant group from the Reformation that believes in adult baptism, simple living, and nonviolence. Luther and the other Protestant reformers um, did not like this radical group that was so against the use of violence, they didn't believe in the Christian state. And so Mennonites became the enemy of the state, and many were killed for their beliefs. Those that survived fled Holland, and so began centuries of my family being refugees across Europe and finally landing in the US. Every generation kept our low German dialect and the cuisine and the tight-knit farming community way of life as best they could. Many Mennonites still believe that the kingdom of God is now. How you take care of those around you is the Christian walk. My father's generation became teachers, nurses, old age caregivers. They also continued to resist fighting. The US government took my Grospa from his farm and forced him into a work camp for most of World War II, along with many men from his Mennonite farming village. And so my grandparents decided my father would speak only English. And this is how the American melting pot works, right? You give up your language and culture and become American. And so I, a person of German-Dutch heritage with only one English-speaking grandparent, do not know any German or Dutch. I am also a peacemaker. It's part of my identity. And that traditionally meant being nonviolent. Conscientious objectors to military service in the US uh, were imprisoned during World War I forced into work camps like my grandfather in World War II. But by the 1960s, there was alternative service, so instead of the military draft. So both my father and Dan's father, along with their young brides, became teachers in Africa during the Vietnam War. And that's how Dan and I were both born in, in Africa. Dan in Nigeria, myself in uh, Botswana. So my middle name, Lesedi, is my Tsetswana name. We were babies when our parents moved back to the US. Now, not every kid internalizes their birthplace like I did. Growing up in America, I refused to sing my country tis of thee or to salute the flag. Now, Mennonites aren't big on patriotic gestures anyway, but I knew I was from somewhere else, and I ached to be there again. This is something else about identity. It's very personal. Despite living there less than a year as a baby, I always considered myself part African. In fact, my firstborn coined the phrase American African when asked for an identity label. So I'm not the only one in my family that feels this way. I am also white. When our family lived in Uganda and Chad, it was obvious we were white. We were not from that place. What it means to be white 
constantly changes since it's a classification of social control and hierarchy. For example, in the US, Irish and Italians were not considered white until this last century. I've been told to not see color and raise my children to not see it. But that feels wrong and actually feels impossible since they've spent nearly half their lives in Africa. People of color now point out claiming colorblindness is a way to shut down real conversations about racism and avoid our complicity in its structure. So we need to learn who we are and our family story as a starting point with identity. Catherine, I am so grateful for the seeming ease at which you seem to be able to talk about these things um, because as you know in the United States we are just learning how to talk about these things and you've had so much practice and in fact it's been such a deep part of your work and so what I'd like to invite us into in this next stage um, of our conversation is um, this whole idea of what it means to be white how we talk about it, um, why that word matters. Um, some of us are very uncomfortable with that word and yet we know that it's a part of our own heritage. Um, and some of us do not identify with that word at all because it's not a part of our stories, right? And you've worked with people in many parts of that word, but how do you talk about that word and how do you talk about how that word functions within the global space and what it means. Ooh. <laughs> okay, I prepared a slightly different answer, oh, but I just would... feel free to yeah, go okay, with, what okay. with what your answer is. Yes, yes, yeah. but these are really good questions. Mm -hmm. And I would say that um, sharing with white communities in South Africa mm -hmm. yeah, was a exactly. really good way to, yeah. to think about this. And we were able to do that in these last couple months. And I shared my life story, some of what I'm sharing with you now, through a biographical music project I did on music as storytelling. And so, like most of you, I have a migrant past. My family traveled from the old homeland. We kissed loved ones goodbye. We left what was comfortable and potentially unbearable and created home somewhere new. And it's striking to us how similar South African history is to our history. We are also settlers in a beautiful land, right? Um, and I'm talking about the white people in the room as I talk about this. We fought with other Europeans for this land. We killed or drove out indigenous people. We brought African slaves and semi-skilled laborers from China and Italy to build our empire. We treated the land as if it was ours for the taking. And we carry this, what I call the sin of the settler. This was justified by the church. We're blinded by a superiority complex, historically. We're armed with might makes right. And white Americans have committed many of the same atrocities as white South Africans. There are similarities between Mennonites and the white Huguenots that went to South Africa. It's very easy for Mennonites to stand on a pedestal and say, we're nonviolent and this isn't part of our history. But learning about 
these Huguenots that came to South Africa made me, I was looking for parallels. They were fleeing persecution for their faith. They were struggling to maintain a minority identity. These are things important to Mennonites. And Mennonites didn't take up arms or slaves, but our noses aren't clean. My forefathers took land that belonged to others, and they farmed it with no regard for those losing all means of their livelihood. And even worse, Mennonites were complicit in the official attempt to snuff out the languages and cultures of those same indigenous people. And I don't say these things to shame us, but to acknowledge our place, my very personal place in this history. And I do that because I've spent four years in South Africa listening to people of color, and this is the starting point. Not to deny or defend or disappear, but admit to the pain we have caused. And I made this same confession in South Africa and feel it's important for us as a church to keep making these confessions. Christianity has a convoluted relationship with colonialization. In the US, we call it the Great Proclamation confounded with Manifest Destiny. When religion enters the political realm, it's easy to back a fallen agenda. One reason most Mennonites stay away from politics. But then we miss supporting our prophets like Martin Luther King. So I argue we should dig deeply into our faith and listen to our brothers and sisters around the world. How can we come together? How can we share our privilege? As Archbishop Tutu says, there but by the grace of God go I. We need the love and grace and power of God to engage and go on into the world to make things right. It's not about mastering the world, but about changing our relationship to the world. Dan and I have lived in six different countries, and for many, the US is a model of progress and innovation. And for many Christians, the US is a Christian role model nation. So I've shared this next part that I'm gonna share with you with four different churches in South Africa to help people understand the US more clearly and to appreciate what's good in South Africa. I called it, three things you need to know about white people. <laughs> And when I shared this at a white church, I said I was referring to Americans, but they can see if any of it fits. So white people don't know everything. In fact, there's a lot that we get wrong. We're often unhappy, selfish, and fearful, and we have a hard time trusting God. And third, Everybody's broken by sin, but if our society lives as if we know everything and we don't trust God, then that brokenness grows deep roots into our society, and that is killing us. So, going over those three again, there's a lot we get wrong. Colonizing, dictating how other people live, these are just a few things we already know white people have gotten wrong. We have also promoted industrial development at any cost, and now the environment is suffering. We have bought into the idolatry of wealth and profits being more important than people. And the particular form of capitalism in the US, making the rich richer and the poor more poor, yet the rest of the world wants to follow this model and be like the US. 
Secondly, we're unhappy and fearful and don't trust God. Our suicide rates continue to go up, even for people who have money and nice things. Fear has made us turn against immigrants and others that don't look like us. And instead of turning to God in our troubled times, we build walls and security gates to protect us. So the third one is living in the society that thinks it knows everything but doesn't trust God, has a brokenness rooted deep in society, and this is killing us. There's a lot of negativity in the U.S. right now. Hate crimes have increased multifold. Immigrant parents separated from their children. People seem to have forgotten how to talk to others that don't agree with them. I asked people in South Africa to guess how many mass shootings there were in 2019. They say, oh, 20, 40? It was 423 last year. That's Americans killing Americans. There are a lot of reasons for these problems. Bad mental health care, easy access to guns, breakdown of the family, rise in depression. But instead of talking about how to change these things, I hear our government blaming immigrants and encouraging race-based fear. Now, there's a lot of crime, fear, racism in South Africa. But we also found a lot of caring for each other and about community, a willingness to forgive and a reliance on God. We're able to have weekend trainings for community mediators in mediation. And after three days, these leaders are ready to resolve conflicts as volunteers. In the US, our leaders seem much more interested in fighting things out and proving that they're right. In South Africa, Sadra goes into troubled schools and principals gives us students to train as peer mediators to reduce conflict on campus. Here, most principals I worked with believe you just need to punish the bad students. And they're not interested in resolving conflicts. It's much more a place of power over people. Sadra also works in preventing election violence. I was astounded by how inclusive their voting laws are. And my colleagues couldn't believe that prisoners and homeless people can't vote in this, the land of the free. We have lived in more traditional societies, and we saw a way of living that puts people as the most important thing, relationships more important than money more important than being on time, more important than having power over others. I feel like we just kind of all need a second to let all of that digest, right? Because it is so much to think about and yet so relevant to the world that we enter into day after day. And I suppose that is sort of the reason why we gather on a regular basis. Uh, we gather as the community of Jesus in lots of different forms, uh, but we gather on a regular basis to come together again and again around this idea of identity. Who are we? Why does it matter? Why do we need to continue to root ourselves in this whole idea of the gospel? And so I'm thinking about everything that you've just said 
and how it is that we begin to put that in conversation with the text that we read today. Because the text that we read today is all about the baptism of Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of that water, and you think about all of the voices that could have come into that space, all of the sound that could have been surrounded in that space, and the sound that we hear. Um, and I just want to take this time also to invite lots of different noises to be within this sanctuary. This is not a sanctuary that needs to have utter silence when folks are speaking. Um, I know that's a new thing that we're getting used to, but that is something that's of value, especially as we develop and expand our community. We need to make space for lots of noise to be within this room. And so I just want to make sure that you all know that that is okay with me um, and that that's part of what it means to gather. And I certainly invite us in the future to fill the front four pew rows if you have trouble hearing. So um, if that's something that you feel like you need support in, these front rows are always open and you can always come a little bit closer to be able to hear. And maybe we can put into practice reserving that space towards the back for the folks that do need to get up and move around and have some noises that have to happen for them to feel comfortable. That's part of what it means to be human. Circling back around um, and taking all of our folks and thinking about what it means to have Jesus come out of that water and then the words that Jesus hears, which are, which is, you are my beloved son. And I think of how Martin Luther King took that mm. and said, we need to become the beloved community. Mm. And how is it that we take all the things that you just talked about, we don't want to ignore them, but we need to figure out how do we put them into practice with this idea of what our identity means and how we begin to live that out as the beloved community. Yes, while the church is broken, we are God's blessed, beloved vessel. I encouraged the South African churches in the several positive things they are doing already for racial healing and to continue getting to know each other because that's such an important piece as well as safeguarding values like Ubuntu. Uh, that's the local word for forgiveness and interconnectedness, while avoiding allowing the US idolizing wealth and security. I mentioned the last time I was here a sermon by a white pastor in the Presbyterian church we attended in South Africa. He preached on Lazarus raised from the dead. We are Lazarus, he said, and we, white South Africa, we were raised from the dead, our own death, in 1994. But we continue to walk around with our grave clothes on. So he went on to describe how restrictive and blinding and yet comfortable and covering of our vulnerabilities these old grave clothes can be. It's not enough to just have Jesus raise you from the dead. We can't see where we're going. We need others to help us remove these stinking cloths. And this makes me think about where the US is at. I don't think we've dealt with our racism 
and our own histories, and we're very divided on top of the problems I've already listed. I read Isaiah 8 recently and was struck by how it could refer to our current country, just changing a couple words. This is why I'm not a pastor. I can do what I want. (laughs) So this is Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 15a, replacing houses of Judah and Israel with houses of Congress. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. God is the one you are to fear. God will be a holy place for both houses of Congress. God will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people, God will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. So the stumbling brings me back to Lazarus, both for the blind ways we thrash around and for the reminder that we need each other to move forward. This is a big lesson we learned in South Africa. We are interconnected, and we have a common fate that requires us to work together. I haven't lived in the U.S. for four years. I can't pretend to understand how it's been or what needs to be done. But I learned in South Africa, we need to humble ourselves as white people. We need to do our homework and learn from cultures that are healthier than ours. And I like this challenge from Isaiah. Perhaps God is purposefully making us all stumble so that we can come back to God's holy place. That is such an important challenge, and we receive that deeply. As we've been supporting and praying for you, we also recognize that this is a word for us. Mm. And so thank you for bringing that, and we will continue to do that work. Mm. Um, Just before we uh, pray for uh, Dan and Catherine, um, and by the way, we'll also be praying uh, and giving thanks for our morning offering. So I just want our ushers to know about that. Um, But before we do that, I want to just offer a few uh, updates and big picture items that will be happening over the next few months. Um, So uh, Dan and Catherine have recently landed back within the Pacific Northwest. They are here. This is going to be their home uh, for the next season of their lives. Uh, They're still speaking and traveling to other churches um, and In alongside of that, they are still planning to partner with us down the road to provide some sort of adult education and maybe a little bit more insight into this word, into these words that we're talking about, uh, and possibly even more um, to that. We're not quite sure yet. We're letting that all of that unfold. Um, And then I also want to issue a a little bit of a financial snapshot. So as you know, we have been uh, um, supporting uh, the Mennonite Mission Network um, over these last four years, and there is still money to be raised. uh, And so we will continue to support and to be involved in that project. 
Um, and our session and our church leadership will certainly have their eye on that. But I do want to um, to invite you to know that, um, especially as you continue to close this season of Thank your you. life. So friends, let us give thanks for this morning's scripture and word. Uh, let us also give thanks for our morning's offering. Uh, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we are so grateful for the courage and the insight that you have been developing within the Smith Dirksons um, from the beginning of their call, but also that which has been refined and sharpened and so clearly articulated in these last four years as they have served in South Africa. We ask that our partnership with them would continue to develop and that we would continue to learn from that which they have so willingly given of themselves. We pray for them in these next few months as they do the continual work of settling and of starting over. We ask that you would give them comfort and peace and we also pray for the financial needs, that they would come from different parts of the congregations that have desired to support them, but that you would continue to raise up folk to, um, to give them the resources that they need as they make this transition. We also thank you for this morning's offering. We ask that you would use these tithes and these gifts to do this work that we would be able to take this word and move it forward. Through the spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. And may the ushers please come forward.